0: Why don't you just tell him everything? Why don't you tell him about the bomb? My orders were simple track down signs of any possible danger.
1: If I found any, blow up the Stargate.
0: Well, I found some.
2: Well, your bomb is his now. And tomorrow he's gonna send it back to Earth. And when that thing goes off, It's going to cause an explosion a hundred times more destructive than that bomb alone is capable of. I was going to stay behind alone and blow up the Stargate, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. Now, I was I was remarking on this to Carly this morning where I, I got up very early to feed the cat at like 6:30 our time here in the morning and posted something on Twitter that you liked. It's like oh, Owen Owen usually like doesn't like anything until like the afternoon because he's like just getting up and then I realized I was like, Owen like it's it's late at night for him. And he just liked something and he's about to go to bed and we're about to do our whole day. And then he will wake up and we'll do the show together. And my mind kind of split open a little bit where I was like, Oh, it's really, really weird thinking about time.
3: It's wild.
1: The reason for that is I got a last minute notification. Uh, So I'd applied or submitted a presentation for the London science fiction critical review or something like that it was like a symposium on um climate change and science fiction and i submitted something a couple of months ago and kind of had it in my spreadsheet and didn't think about it and then i got an email from them you know midway through the week and they're like yes we'd like you to do something can you do it on saturday and i was like oh shit okay so then i had to like (laughs) go and find go and find like my essay that I wrote back in my honors program, and I had to like pull that apart, find what was useful, and like do a full presentation. And then I looked at the time difference, and when they scheduled me in, it was for like midnight at, you know, Sunday. So the reason I was online and on Twitter <laughs> was because I was sitting in this conference presentation for, you know, the afternoon on London's Saturday, which is like my midnight. And I was, doing my presentation and kind of just like chilling on Twitter for a little bit. So yeah, I've had some sleep, but I'm, I'm wild. <laughs> I'm caffeinated. I'm good to go. Okay. I'm ready to riff. That's good. We're... You also
3: went to bed right after you did like an academic presentation. So mm-hmm. I think like whatever you roll in with today, like you're fine. Oh,
2: look, <laughs> the last I thing th- I did
3: before bed was like, I don't know. Eight cookies. I have Eight three cookies. pages <laughs> of notes.
1: I'm, I'm like, I'm good to go. I watched the director's cut i watched the theatrical uh, cut i went and watched the cut again with Emmerich's commentary like uh, i'm good i'm, I'm primed. Okay.
2: you're you're already much more prepared and and primed to have this conversation than we are like you <laughs> you've done Actual presentations, like academic work on yes. this film. So. But
3: that's why you're here, so that we can just let you learn us.
1: I've, I've been, I've been preparing for this for my whole life, Aaron. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is, this is your proving ground right now. This is, this is it. First podcast appearance. That's it. Hopefully not your last. We're gonna, we're gonna force you on here, coerce you, even if you have a bad time today.
1: I, I, I highly doubt that. This has been fun already. So I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. I was doing I was doing like my last little bit of notes uh before you guys came online and I started like as it always happens like right before you have to submit something or right before you're about to do something you have that that burst of inspiration that you've been looking mm-hmm. for for the last like four hours mm-hmm. and I started like putting together just like a loose kind of like thematic construction of what I think is going on in this film but also as it pertains to, like emmerich's whole filmography
3: oh we better get into that
2: i want to hear about this too because this (laughs) this is the stuff that really like really revs my engine owen it's like uh you know coming up with the the sort of thesis the fully encompassing idea of like what an entire person's oeuvre and like career is about um so that is something we will definitely do
1: Hell yeah. Let's do it.
2: I think now's a a good place to go ahead and officially start the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hit Factory. Uh, My name is Aaron.
3: My name is Carly.
2: And uh, you've already heard a little bit from him. But today we have a very special guest, uh, an esteemed culture critic coming all the way uh, from the other side of the earth in Australia. It is our good friend Owen Morowitz on the show. Owen. Thank you for being here.
1: No worries. Thank you for having me. It's uh, good to be here. I'm a big fan of the show so thanks for having me on.
2: We are so pleased to have you on here and uh, you know this is a, an auditory medium first and foremost so you can't see this but in order to accommodate the fact that we are uh, so far apart from one another and on opposite ends of of this uh, pale blue dot, Carly and I are podcasting upside down in order to to make it easier for, for Owen to see us. We look right side up to him on the screen, um, but uh, yeah. I
3: also just want to note that with our backgrounds, it almost feels like we're in the same room, We Does do, it not?
1: I was about to comment on this. So I think like <laughs> there's a lighting fixture on my ceiling that looks eerily similar to yours. And then we have similar color walls. We have like, art and stuff on the back so like yeah I, I think we're we're kind of twinning in a way and and we i like
2: kind of twinning perhaps it had something to do with an extraterrestrial being creating a portal from our end of things directly to yours transferring people from from our particular point of origin there and uh then civilization just sort of evolved in tandem with with some cultural elements remaining the same Mm -hmm. on either end.
1: I think that's very plausible. I mean, we're using the Einstein Rosen bridge wormhole of zoom to be able to interact (laughs) with each other instantaneously. Like I can get behind that for sure.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, if you haven't figured it out already or haven't read the title to this episode, we are discussing today, uh, Roland Emmerich's 1994 science fiction I'll go ahead and call it a blockbuster, science fiction blockbuster, Stargate. The original film, of course, spawned uh, many a television series. Lot, lot This property has legs. Um, so much so that I think that I, I was talking to Carly about this off air. But to me, when I think Stargate, I actually, uh, for most of my life, have... I think, more immediately recognized the characters and the actors from SG-1 than would I recognize James Spader or Kurt Russell as their uh, respective characters from the film. Um, But I I am curious, Owen, because you've done a substantial amount, I think, of academic work writing uh, thought around Stargate and its its concepts, I want to know what this film means to you. And I want, uh, I want to know just like, wh- why Stargate?
1: Okay, so I'll try not to digress <laughs> too much oh, here. please digress. We got a lot of
2: time, so. <laughs>
1: okay, so film came out in 1994, and I was born in 1988. So I was six years old when the film came out. And I grew up in a small town in regional Queensland here in Australia, um, had about, 10,000 people, so really kind of small town, but we had a drive-in movie theater. So a lot of my fond or fondest memories of childhood are mm-hmm. kind of rolling up in the back of the car watching movies, having the speaker kind of dangling from the window um and Stargate was one of those films that we saw at the drive-in. So for me it kind of has this like nostalgic kind of impulse. Um but then second to that is I'm just a massive nerd so like growing up I had very few friends as much as it pains me to admit uh I would sit at home and read all the time and I would be that annoying kid that like tried to quiz people and like capital cities around the world and just like real (laughs) nerd shit but
3: that was also Aaron Casillas for the record that
1: was me as well (laughs) But that manifested in a love for science fiction. I loved Star Wars. I loved Star Trek. You know, you put Star in the title, chances (laughs) are I wanted to watch it. Stargate, in a similar way, the film I was enamoured with in my youth, but then it was really the show SG-1 that I latched onto, and I watched the entire 10-season run kind of as it aired, as a mm. as a youth come teenager, so I kind of grew up with the show, so I have an affinity for it. I think I agree with you, Aaron, that I definitely resonate with those character portrayals more than Emmerich's film. Although I still have a soft spot for it because it's cheesy nineties action blockbuster material. Um, <laughs> and come on, it's James Spader and Kurt Russell. Like how could you yes. not? How, how could you not love what he's working with there?
2: If you had asked me to guess, you know, before we became a- acquainted within the last few months here, Owen, which of Roland Emmerich's 90s output we would have talked about first, this one probably would have been at the bottom of the list, even below maybe Universal Soldier. Um, but yeah, I-, I assumed, you know, Independence Day we would have gotten to maybe, uh, probably you know, maybe Godzilla as well, because I have a little bit of a of a soft spot for that film. I was obsessed with the 98 Godzilla um, and no matter how many times I watch it now as an adult and like, know objectively that it's awful, I still like it. Like I can still watch all like two hours and 20 minutes of it and still have a good time. Um, but I am so glad that we, we came to this one first, I think, because we, we try to kind of cast a wide net in terms of directors. We don't want to double up too much, except apparently with John Turtletobbs somehow that <laughs> happened, but
3: he's all over the nineties, <laughs> man. We can't get away from John,
2: but you know, uh, I'm glad we came to this one first, because honestly, I, I had never seen it uh, before we we started uh, preparing for, for this episode today. And I, I got to say, there's there's a lot going for it. I, I hope that given your affinity for it, you won't mind me saying that as a film, there are plenty of valid criticisms to be made about oh, it.
1: Oh, 100%. Like it's, <laughs> it's very much a product of its time. It's mm-hmm. a product of Emmerich's formation as a filmmaker Mm -hmm. um but i think you know like you say it's a strange choice perhaps to do this as the first emmerich film but i would argue that this is really the genesis of what would come to be known as a roland emmerich film like Mm -hmm. this is the first time that all of the pieces that have made up his career particularly his partnership with dean devlin and mm-hmm. having the backing of a big studio and all that sort of stuff this is the first time that that really comes together in a way um that he's able to kind of shape the vision on screen um and it's funny that you bring up universal soldier because i remember watching that on like vhs when i was maybe like eight or nine and even then like I'm a young, impressionable kid, and even then I was like, "Ah, eh, this kind of sucks. Like, it's, it's, yeah. not, it's not great. <laughs> and then in preparation for this, I was looking through Emmerich's filmography and I was like, yeah, I've seen Independence Day like a hundred times. I've seen Godzilla a couple of times. I've seen pretty much all of his films. And I was like, I haven't done Universal Soldier in like forever. So I watched it I think maybe two nights ago. Still sucks. But it's <laughs> it's interesting because it validated kind of my hunch that like that was his first Hollywood film, I guess, but he didn't write it, and he kind of fell into directing it. Um, but yeah, it was really happenstance that got Emmerich his first shot with Universal Soldier. And then that became a very minor success. And then that gave him the platform to, pitch Stargate and eventually do Stargate which again I think really is the beginning of him as a uh, auteur if you want to be so bold so
2: <laughs> I would call him that I, I think that Emmerich's name would, would get tossed around along with like you know this sort of canon of, of vulgar auteurs you know along with like a, a Paul W.S. Anderson or a, a David Tui or something like that you know as well um, I I think that you're you're absolutely right, and and this film too. You know, as we were watching it, felt so much like you said. You know, like the the thing that put all of these pieces into formation, sort of a, a hieroglyphic key, if you will, uh, oh. of of what was to come in Emmerich's career. Like there are so many trace elements here of many of his future films, but especially Independence Day. And this feels a lot like a, a testing ground for um, a lot of the things that worked really well and made that film so successful. Um, and this one, you know, despite having been pretty pummeled by critics and, and, you know, not having much of a legacy outside of, of course, you know, the properties and the television series that came out of it, uh, grossed a significant amount of money on a pretty, like pretty tight budget. I think it was something like 55 million and and grossed like 200 million in its final run.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, that's a pretty it's a pretty decent return. And if you put it into perspective, like that's like Marvel doing a a movie for like hundred and fifty or two hundred million dollars and then like making a billion and being stoked about it. So I mean like right. he did he did pretty good with the material. Um and I think in my research I looked at kind of the films of that year and it was A little bit of a gift in terms of the release schedule like when it released there wasn't really much else in that particular kind of vein as far as like a science fiction film goes i also think that coming a year after jurassic park probably Mm -hmm. helped as well so like the american kind of film going public was kind of primed for a film like this which is like relatively low stakes kind of enjoyable like what I would call like a popcorn film like you can watch it mm-hmm. it's kind of fun kind of goofy you don't have to think too much about it but then you can be like us and just overthink it to death so <laughs> it goes well, the both movie, ways
3: the movie itself has a lot in it and I think one of the things that maybe makes the film a little bit messy is not that it's like shoddy workmanship or anything like that, but rather that it's a film that like has so many ideas that it's kind of like ripping apart at the seams because of how many things it wants to show you. And that's one of the things that I really love about Emmerich's movies. Like you can just tell he's a man that has a really active, productive, beautiful imagination the practical and special effects in this movie are stunning that is the word that i that i can say like without hyperbole about them this film does a phenomenal job transitioning and blending between practical and special effects where you don't really see the seams you kind of just are immersed in in the entirety of the thing. And Jurassic Park is a film that does that very well also.
1: I would probably quibble a little bit at the notion of the seams being hidden because there are some really funny moments, particularly in like the second act and the third act, that you can definitely see the seams or or probably more accurately the strings. Um, (laughs) There's a part in like the bit where they're on uh abydos and they're like fighting the the uh death gliders that ra has sent and you can literally see the string from the death glider as <laughs> no. it's like swinging around it's so so good um there's I also like a, there's another thing like if you if you rewatch the film I, I guess if that's something that you guys would be prepared to do uh <laughs> in all of the desert scenes um I was watching this like late at night and I was pausing it and like writing notes. And it took me like three and a half hours to watch the entire film. Cause I just kept pausing and writing down notes. And I, I thought I was hallucinating cause I was looking at Kurt Russell's glasses and there was this like weird reflection going on. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And I kept watching it, pausing it. And then I realized that it's the white uh, glare screen that they put uh, in front of actors yeah. to bounce the light on them, and once I saw it, I could not unsee it. And it is in it is in almost every shot, and in some of the close-ups, you can literally see like Emmerich, the the people behind a camera rig. You can see the white glare screen, and you can see all of the crew like in a circle around. Stop. Here. So it's like this weird like <laughs> reflection of the entire process. And then, and then that raised an interesting kind of thought in my head. I was like, oh, that wouldn't happen in a, in a film today because they would just scrub that digitally. You know, they mm-hmm. would just go through and edit it out. But, you know, they didn't airbrush films like that in the 90s. Yeah. And I didn't even know if anyone saw that. I don't know if they watched it back on film and were like, ah, fuck it, and just, like, left it in. Like, they're obviously not going to go out and do reshoots. They're not going to go back to the desert and reshoot that, or how could they? So, I don't know. I like it for all of those little, like, cracks that are still present, and I think it makes it a more earnest and sincere film because Mm. you can see the construction, the artifice behind it.
3: Yeah. I would
2: agree with that, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, those are, to me, value-adds, especially given the fact that this is, like, you know, a, a, a director, you know, still proving himself early in his career, it's a, a relatively small budget for a large sort of ambitious project like this, especially like in this f- sci-fi realm with, with the kind of scope and and what he's trying to achieve. And also, you know, as as a rebuttal, I don't know if it was just Twitter compression or something, but do you, did you happen to catch that like Black Widow clip that was going around that oh, people yeah. were making fun of where f- f- it's like very clear that Florence Pugh is like on... On like a a harness and and strings when she like is falling off of like a she does that backflip like up.
1: off the tower thing yeah I saw that yeah
2: and <laughs> and I don't know if it was just like you know something going on with like the video or or you know if it was like maybe like uh an, an early you know like watermarked edit or something that leaked but um, you can still see the strings sometimes in those and those are the ones where I almost I, I have a much harder time forgiving because it's like you're working with a three hundred million dollar budget. These are, these are things you should be able to scrub.
1: Yeah. I have a, I have a thing with, with that as well. Like that particular clip was obviously of like a big action set piece at the end of the film. Um, And, you know, much has been written about how Marvel will often like write a film around those set pieces. Like they already kind of know where they Mm -hmm. want to film to end or how they want to like kick things off. And then they like fill in the blanks as they go. And you know, yeah, you can see the strings, it's not the best use of CGI, that's fine. But it's the type of set piece that like you can't really go back and redo, can't really go back and fix it. So I can kind of Mm -hmm. forgive them for that. What I can't forgive is the stuff that I saw on Twitter where there's a scene in Black Widow, like I think it's in the second act, where uh Florence Pugh and Scarlett Johansson like sit down outside of a garage. And they're kind of just having a heart to heart, like drinking beers and just kind of sitting there. Mm-hmm. And then there was all this stuff on Twitter about how that was done against a green screen and how like they were just sitting in like a sound booth and then they just like edited in all of the stuff around it. And I don't know if that's real or not. I don't trust Twitter to that degree, but I was thinking <laughs> about it and I was just like, that's so ridiculous. Like, why can't they just go out and find a park bench and shoot it? or like build a set or build a location and shoot it. Like this impulse to just green screen everything to death just annoys the hell out of me because films often look so bland and washed out and artificial and and awful. And I think to your point, Carly, that's what I love about this film. Like for all of its faults, for all of its quirky little cracks, like it looks gorgeous it looks like someone mm-hmm. actually went out into the desert and shot that shit like yes. that, te- yeah. that that temple that they the temple that, the set that, pieces are really fantastic like fantastic. that's real so uh the academic conference that i was on had um uh what's his name uh Stuart tyson smith who was the ucla professor who did the egyptology consulting for the film and he did he did the keynote address at this uh, conference that I was a part of, talking about his involvement on the film, um, and he mentions that they built that entire like temple face because it kind of backs into the sand dune, and then they obviously kind of have the matte painting of like a pyramid behind it, mm-hmm. um, but they they built that thing that's like a fifty foot you know like two scale kind of Egyptian tomb thing. And then they stuck that in the Arizona desert. And then they use that as like a practical set.
3: I am really glad to hear uh, the affirmation, the confirmation that it was in fact built because you can tell. And, and to your point about so many movies today, just like green screening, everything, you know, despite the fact that we've sort of been like trained, I think like to accept that as like a visual language when you watch a movie and you see an actual set you know it's a set like without someone telling you or doing something obvious to make you realize that it is a real thing
1: it's like tactile it feels it's, real it's
3: tactile yes. it's like corporeal there's something about it you know the sort of effort that's put into making a film and its dressings, uh, particularly in the 90s when you reach an interesting apex of special effects starting to become a little bit more, um, a little bit more industry standard and also the audience getting more literate in that visual language. It's just like a perfect time for movies um, because so many things can happen, but people are still building shit. And it's the building shit and, like, the costuming, like, Ra's costumes and the sets where he's in his throne room. I, like, was drooling over all of it.
2: And as someone who's obsessed with puppetry and miniatures, those uh, alien beasts of burden that they do that are, are yes. you know, clearly done with sort of, like, practical, like, puppetry and, and guys and, you know, sort cool. like, hairy suits. I would have been obsessed with as a kid and and still, like, was marveling at them and and just how much... Motion and speed and yeah physicality they were able to like ring out of that and make it look real and make it feel authentic like, yeah th- there's a lot of, of work being put into this that that really pays off for sure Owen oh, would you care to take a stab at a, a brief synopsis of Stargate yes
3: thrust on Owen's yeah. lap so
1: <laughs> being a fan of the show I've listened to enough episodes to anticipate this and (laughs) i would say that this is the thing that i've not agonized over but i like knew would be incumbent on me to do (laughs) and do well so okay um the film opens up on a archaeological dig site uh in giza in egypt in 1928 um and we see the raising of the Stargate which is a giant otherworldly ring that's buried in the desert. Um, And there's um, like a young girl character that we're introduced to who becomes important later on. Um, But basically we just see them pulling it out and it's very majestic. And we're kind of like, ooh, what's that? And and that's pretty much it. So that's your little prelude. And then the film proper starts uh, with a cut to a hotel lobby. And we see Egyptologist and linguist Daniel Jackson, who's played by James Spader. Uh, And he's giving a presentation to a room of, you know, very stuffy, academic, cis white men on the Great Pyramids. Um, And he's trying to suggest that they couldn't have been built by the ancient Egyptians. Um, And he's getting laughed out of the room. He makes kind of a faux pas by suggesting that maybe it was aliens that did it uh and then that's it and everyone leaves and he's kind of disgraced so he goes out into a very emmerich scene of someone standing in the rain for no reason whatsoever other than they're like (laughs) you know here's a physical representation of them being down and sad so we'll just have them get rained on um And then he's pulled into a car and recruited by uh, this woman called Catherine Langford, who is the little girl from the beginning of the film, now grown up, Uh, and she wants him to come to a secret military base and decipher some symbols on a as yet unnamed device, but we can already infer that it's the Stargate. Jackson doesn't really have anything going for him. She kind of roasts him in the car and says, you know, you've been kicked out of your apartment. You don't have any placements in academia. You know, you're a laughingstock. You suck. What else are you going to do? And he's like, Come yeah, work okay. for the
3: American government. Yeah.
1: He's like, OK, fair enough. I'll get that. I'll get that DOD check. So let's go. Um, so he rocks up at the military base. Uh, we find that the project has been taken over by Colonel Jack O'Neill, who is played by a very tactiturn Kurt Russell. Um, I, I, I checked the entire film. He doesn't smile until the very end of the film. Like, the very end. He just, like, is completely just, like, frown-faced the entire time. It's kind of breathtaking. He's a man
2: of few words as well. He doesn't say a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: This kind of comes back to why I think the portrayal of the characters in SG1 is is so much more endearing because, uh, you know, Richard Dean Anderson, MacGyver, mm-hmm. plays him in the TV show and is far better suited to the character. Brings a whole mm-hmm. lot of levity and comedy to him and kind of makes him a much more human and relatable character. In this film, he's very much an Emmerich construction and he's about as 2D as a as a character can get. Like we're given, yep. you know, a brief, and when I say brief, I mean like less than a minute of dialogue that explains that he has a traumatic past. The end, and you're like, okay, cool, I guess. Thank you. Um,
3: <laughs> All right, you've got pathos.
1: Yeah. So uh, Jack O'Neill takes over the project. Jackson arrives. He starts looking at the symbols and eventually figures out that they're not hieroglyphics and that's why they haven't been able to decipher them they're actually constellations and then once he figures that out they show him the device which is the stargate which is now housed in this military base and they already i think kind of guess what it is and what it does because they've built a ramp up to it and through it, which if <laughs> oh you God. didn't know if you didn't know what it was, then why would you have a ramp kind of going to it? But anyway, so they're like, okay, cool, you figured out how to open it. So they use the symbols, they turn it on, and it generates a wormhole uh, from that device to another device, which is located on a planet. Uh, in the film, they say it's in a different galaxy which is, I guess, you know, very fanciful and wow for, for audiences. Uh, they rein that back in the, in the TV show a little bit retroactively. But anyway, they say it's on another planet. Let's go. So mm. Jackson is the only person in the room who is awed by this at all. The military are just like, cool, can we, can we bomb it? Can we, can, we, can we send stuff through it? How do we kill people with it? Uh, O'Neill heads up a military team that goes through the gate. They take Jackson with them because he says, well, I can decipher the symbols on the other side so we can get home. They go through the gate and they're on a desert planet called Abydos. Um, And as they come out of the temple that they kind of step into, it's revealed that there's an ancient Egyptian pyramid there. Um, There's a beautiful shot of uh, three moons over the, the Abydosian sky. So you get this kind of sense of like, oh, wow, they're really on another planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that kind of kicks the whole film into gear. So they encounter some human people on the on the Abydos uh, planet and then it's revealed that there's an alien big bad villain who's uh, portraying or opposing in the role of Ra, the Egyptian sun god, and he's basically enslaved humanity. And then for reasons explained in the film, people eventually rebel And he leaves Earth and is essentially just settled on Abydos. Um, So that explains why we have a Stargate that we buried and now they've uncovered and that's how we're able to to figure out all of this. Um, And then long story short, they kind of do a, you know, US foreign policy intervention. They Mm -hmm. uh, incite (laughs) rebellion. They go to war. They do a liberty by killing Ra freeing the people of Abydos (laughs) and then O'Neill and the troops go back through the gate. Jackson feels more at home with the people of Abydos because like Catherine said, he doesn't have shit back home. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's also got a bonus wife now. So that's cool. Uh, So he's like, no, I'm just going to chill and stay Uh, the end. And then the film just like hard, hard finish like you don't even really see them go back through the gate you don't get to see the debrief on the other side film doesn't care about any of that it's just like yeah cool adventure done the end
3: Mm.
2: and that's it bravo
3: well done sir very
2: well done (laughs) (laughs) um you you hit all the all the notes
3: there's so much in that movie i can't believe that you uh landed that as successfully as you did
2: um I, I want to start, I think, with the mythology around it. Because, again, I, this is the part for me in the film with a few, you know, segments that that really kind of drag a little bit. You know, it's a little bit of a slow burn for the first, like, 60 to 75 minutes of this movie. Um, but when it finally gets into addressing the mythology, the idea of, like, where God, uh, Ra came from how the Stargates came into being and and why there is so much sort of shared collective, like history and culture between these two different societies on earth and on Abydos. That's when it starts to really cook for gas, it cook <clears throat> with gas for me rather. For sure. Um, so do you want to take us through like a little bit of detail explicitly about like what, what happened here? Because I think it raised some questions for us too. We, we had, I think, Uh, A disagreement about the origin of the sort of like Horus warrior uh, security guards that Ra utilizes and what their origin was if they were human, if they were also extraterrestrials who embodied humans.
1: Sure. So what I'll say on the notion of the mythology is that like within the film itself in isolation, there's very little to dig into. Like, it gives you just enough to kind of explain what's going on, but it doesn't really answer any of the larger questions around how any of this works. And a lot of it is picked up in the TV show and fleshed out and explained in much greater detail. Um, There's a really good retrospective piece uh, that Variety magazine did on the 20th anniversary of uh, Stargate, That i was reading that had some some cool little tidbits but one of them was that the the script was co-written by emmerich and his partner and producer dean devlin and they kind of riffed on this idea of uh ra being an alien or not so i think in the original Mm. formulation of the script he was an ancient egyptian who was just like in servitude to the alien gods So he wasn't an alien himself. And then in the variety piece, you know, uh, Devlin has this bit where he was like, yeah, we're in the car and we were talking about it. And suddenly Roland was like, oh, my God, what if he's an alien? And then that's pretty much it. So (laughs) I think in terms of, like, the mythology and, and what it really means in any profound sense, I don't think it's really there in this film. I don't think Roland... Uh, or, or Emmerich, sorry, and, and Devlin are really too concerned with it. In the, in the context of the film, Ra is meant to be like this alien kind of being who takes human uh, bodies for their regenerative capabilities. So he uses a sarcophagus as like a healing device, which they use in different plot points in the film um, to regenerate uh like gunshot wounds and um staff burn wounds and and things like that and there's a bit of dialogue between Ra and James Spader's Daniel Jackson where he's like you know I found humans and you're so easily fixed and that's why I like you is because like I can heal you I have all this technology and you know that's that's pretty much all you're just meat and I can I can use the meat Um, It doesn't really explain how he takes human form, whether he's, like, inside the people or or what. Um, And there's a couple of weird scenes, particularly towards the end, where they kind of show almost like a grey alien face of what Ra's form looks like. And that always puzzled me, even as a kid, and then even now, trying to think it through, like I'm not even sure if they fully understood how that would work or if they cared. I mm-hmm. think it was just like that, you know, at a at a level of signifier says alien, so we'll just do that. And then people will be like, oh, cool, he's an alien and just move on. Uh, for the Horus guards, they are fully human within the context of of this film uh in the tv show they would be uh what's known as Jafar so they would have the larval symbiote form of the alien race which is known as the gold in their like little pouch stomach thing so they wouldn't actually be aliens they would be kind of like advanced human kind of uh, offshoots or whatever that um, no, no, so we were
2: both right is what yeah. you're saying is that there's there's room here for both of us to be correct
1: for sure and, and i think really that's it's just because like there's so much in this film that so many like beats to hit and so many things that emmerich is trying to like chuck in that he's really not too interested in in the you know like the narrative mechanics of how any of this works (laughs) he's just like yeah he's just like yeah they're they're aliens and they're they're egyptian like shut up move on
3: it's interesting that so many people or that there are so many examples of people coming to the original film and building from it as you said because what this film did for me particularly with the mythology and some of the world building was just raise a lot of questions not because i was like I don't get it. This is dumb. But because I wanted more, like I I was genuinely invested in understanding more about Ra's origins and his relationship to humans and who Osiris and Horus and all of these other gods that I remember learning about when I studied ancient Egypt, like where they fit into it. So it's vaguely comforting, I think, to hear that you know, you also feel like the text itself is not fully fleshed out because I was sort of reflecting like, oh, maybe I missed something or, you know, I I didn't see a detail. But
2: Carly went on a journey here with this one. (laughs) When I I know that a film does not hold up like structurally and narratively when I watch them with Carly, because she will have a 1000 questions. And if I can't answer them, I'm like, either I need to to pay better attention or this thing is just not delivering the way it needs to for these to be answered. I just
3: really wanted to understand what the deal with his like minions were. Like I, I really wanted to understand how they played into the kind of landscape of aliens being interpreted by ancient Egyptians as gods. Like that's a fascinating concept to me. Just like in real life and so um like i i refused to accept aaron's answer that they were just humans like i I was like no they're aliens or something and but i also want to note just sort of like a logistical um, remark is that we watch movies with the subtitles on all the time and i don't know if this is the case with this particular film. But the only reason I knew that it was Horace and Osiris and whomever else it was, was because the subtitles were telling me who was growling off screen. And they would say Horus Snarl, whatever. Um, and so I wonder if like we would have known that they were even uh, named those names had we not seen the subtitles. I just don't, I I'm not sure if that's there.
1: Yeah, and I think, what, what it kind of suggests to me is that, you know, if you do a bit of cursory research on the film and how it came about, so Emmerich got the inspiration when he was in film school in Munich because uh, he's you know, German, uh, and in the 70s he saw a film adaptation of Eric Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods. Mm. So um, he saw the film version, which was directed by Harold Reinel. And it's like a, you know, documentary type adaptation of that, of that text. For those who aren't familiar, like chariots of the gods, Eric von Daniken basically says like, look at all the cool stuff that people in the ancient world built. Uh, What if aliens did it? And then just like, doesn't propose any real evidence. And the evidence that he does propose is, you know, pseudoscience and shoddy and terrible. So it's been widely disputed in, in any kind of serious academic way. Um, but it does live on in the public consciousness. You know, there's like 20 seasons of ancient aliens, which is essentially yeah. just them re retreading that same material over and over mm. and over again. But I think for the film, that's really all that's going on, is that yeah. Emmerich, Emmerich saw that idea and was like, yeah, what if aliens built the pyramids and then that kind of stops and that's it? And mm-hmm. then... The the stuff that he uses, you know, in Ra's ship, in the temple, is really just at the level of, like, surface iconography so that yes. people can go, that's ancient Egyptian. Like, I know that's an Anubis head. I know that's a Horus head. I know that's Ra. Cool, the end. Like, it really right. <laughs> it doesn't really want to delve any deeper into the mythology because the mythology doesn't really matter. What matters is the adventure that that particular story can can ignite um, and for emmerich i think particularly coming off universal soldier you know he's really concerned of like how can i send the us military to another planet how, how can i how can i make that happen how can i yep. do a blockbuster film so it's all just a narrative conceit to justify that end you know at the level of production it was probably Professor Smith from UCLA yes. who was like, okay, well, that's a Horus guard. And Emmerich and Devlin were probably like, Horus what? And he's like, well, that that's thats what you're using is Horus. So that's what you have to call them. Um, so, yeah, I, I really don't think there's a lot of depth when it comes to the the mythology and the, the references to ancient Egyptian mythology. Like it's all very surface. It's all just there to kind of, you know, ask some really interesting questions in mm-hmm. service of a very uh, film cliche uh, adventure.
3: Yes, I would agree well with put. that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think we see this evolve over the course of his career, and and even as like you know jumping immediately into Independence Day, you know, there's just enough explanation there for it to hold together. We have a like a, you know uh, bellicose alien force, and there's just that one moment after Bill Pullman kind of. Uh, you know, gets grabbed by the alien exoskeleton, and sort of says like, "Oh, I, I saw it. I saw their whole plan. You know, they're they're parasites, and they go from planet to planet, eating and consuming everything. And they're going to do it to us next. And yep. that's all it is. You know, it." So he gets even more Spartan with his sort of explanation and sort of world building as the as his movies. And in go a on.
1: way, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Like I don't mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't want this to read as like an indictment on that. Like I think there is something to be said for Emmerich's narrative economy. Like he as a filmmaker is quite good at, you know using terrible dialogue to create a real sense of like kinetic energy in a film. I think he does a good job at just kind of giving you just enough for it to kind of pass through your brain unhindered to the next thing. And then it's only really if you want to stop and interrogate it and go, well, wait, okay, well, like if that happens, then what about this? Like he's giving you the option to do that, but it's not required. You don't need Mm -hmm. to do that. The film will just keep going. Things will keep happening and it will be an enjoyable ride all the way through. Uh, Mm. And I think you see why that works when you watch the second Independence Day, which is one of the worst films I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> it, it's
2: it's bad. It's very When
1: bad. when he tries to to add to that story that doesn't require any extra information, you don't need to find out anymore. You don't need those questions answered because the film in isolation is is perfectly fine at giving you, mm-hmm. you know, a digestible popcorn movie adventure. And any any attempt to interrogate any further reveals how kind of flimsy and bad the the character development and world building and stuff is. Like he's really good at that surface stuff, but you know, there's nothing underneath it. And if he tries to create it, you're like, oh, you're not very good at this, Roland. Like maybe you shouldn't <laughs> do that.
3: It's definitely quantity over quality. But as you said, there is a real skill to be able to deliver so much like visually and narratively and still have it be an enjoyable movie and one that doesn't feel like you're being tossed about and you know the experience that you're describing of the viewer of just sort of like yeah if you just like sit back and like let it pass through your cerebrum and and you know, enjoy the film for that and and don't really interrogate it further. Like the film keeps going and and that's all you really have to do. I think this is mirrored in the characters in the movie. There, you know, I should say as an aside, Uh, Roger Ebert hated this movie I read his review his
1: (laughs) review is so good like you can tell he just he hates it he hates it so much (laughs) much.
3: (laughs) he hates it so much he gave it three paragraphs and they were every single sentence was was a critique but one thing that he brought up for me that I think is germane to the the conversation we're having right now is that the characters lack a sense of wonder and he articulated something that I couldn't quite put my finger on when I was watching the movie because I, on the other hand, was like gasping left and right. I was like in complete awe of like everything that I was seeing and stopping the movie to ask Aaron a bunch of questions, you know, as evidenced by the fact that I'm like still upset about the fact that I didn't get the answer that I wanted about Horace. Like I'm not the type of viewer that you're describing. And I noticed that upon reflection, when Ebert pointed out these characters aren't really, you know, in awe of anything that's happening in the movie, there isn't a sense of wonder that, yeah, that's the case. But as we're talking, I'm realizing that that's kind of what Emmerich wants, right? Like, not just from the viewer, but also from the people that populate his films. Like, He wants them to not be bogged down by the questions or the sort of tedium. He wants that kineticism, as you say, and he can't necessarily have kineticism if when they go through a fucking space wormhole and they come out on the other end and they're all like scratching their heads and like vomiting and screaming about what just happened to them, he can't have that. So instead, what he has them say is. What a rush! And then yeah. they fucking walk out into the desert, <laughs> right? Like the movie does, just keep going.
1: So that guy, um, oh God, what's his name? It's like Frank, Frankie Moretti or something like that. Uh, he's uh the actor. Sorry, who's like what a rush is the guy from Third Rock from the Sun? Third Rock
3: from the Sun, French, French Stewart. Stewart. Yeah, the,
1: the 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 squinty guy. Yes. Uh, and that was cool on my rewatch. I was like, "Holy shit!" It's the guy from Third Rock from the Sun.
2: Yes, um, it is. He's the one who I think is like the hardest to buy, and it's it's all just hindsight and retrospect. It's though, only because when you know f- when what we...
3: French <laughs> Stewart is, like he's not a military dude. Yes,
1: when and he tries to like do Res- the t- the tough guy posturing and he's like bullying Jackson and stuff like that, it, doesn't, you know work. it, it doesn't, doesn't work. It doesn't work. It just
2: does, it does not work. work. No, knowing his character from from Third Rock, it's just like it all just falls apart
1: if we could circle back to the point that you were outlining before about kind of what Emmerich wants to do in terms of like the flatness of the mm. viewing experience mm-hmm. and characters, um, I had kind of some thoughts on that that I was feeling out during, my, yes. during my notes. So I think, you know, one of the big th- themes of not necessarily the film, but I guess of watching the film is this notion of US imperialism and American exceptionalism. And it's an interesting kind of thing for me, I guess. You know, like I'm in my early 30s and I watch a lot of films that I soaked up and enjoyed fairly passively in the 90s and then come at them with this 2021 lens and try and unpack them. Um, And that's essentially what you guys do on this podcast and it's fantastic and that's why I'm a big, big fan. But for me, watching Stargate, it's very hard to not question some of the the imperialistic impulses that are happening on screen. and I just think that it's an interesting timeline for when the film was produced and released in terms of what was happening in... American foreign policy at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, You've got the first Gulf War in 1990 and 91. You've got the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. In 92, you have the dissolution of Yugoslavia and the start of all of those like Balkan tensions. Yep. Uh, we also have Fukuyama's end of history kind of suggesting that Capitalism and kind of the American way of doing things is now the only way of doing things. And then obviously you've got the changeover from George Bush Senior to Bill Clinton. 94, when the film comes out, the American invasion and occupation of Haiti happens. So I think going through this timeline, I was trying to think of like what's what's kind of happening in the Zeitgeist and what's being represented on screen. And I think if I had to kind of put my finger on it, it's that there's the loss of this external existential big other. You know, the Soviets are gone. The Cold War is over. The American war machine is revved up. It's ready to go. Doesn't have anyone to fight. And I think what the film suggests is that the military is bored and complacent. You see this registered in their affect in the film, which is this lack of awe and ambition and wonder that Roger Ebert taps into. So there's the scene Mm. where they, they crack the Stargate and they open the wormhole for the first time. And there's shots of Jackson with his mouth hanging open, agape, just like, holy shit, what is this? It pans around to all of the different technicians, you know, the nerds. Who are there and they're all like, whoa, that's crazy. And then it pans up to the boardroom full of the military and they're all just buzz cuts, straight faces. No one's, you know, reacting at all because they're all just sizing it up immediately as a threat, as something that must be controlled and dominated. And, you know, how can we blow it up? How can we send troops through it? And I think that's just an interesting way of framing it, but I'm not sure if that's intentional at the level of Emmerich as a writer and a director. Like, I am i don't think that is necessarily a message that he's trying to convey, but I think it is an interesting way of reading what's happening on screen.
3: I am right there with you, Owen. I was watching this film, and I immediately turned to Aaron and said, this... Is because of the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Like this film is because of the Gulf War and uh, Desert Storm. The idea that there is not a big baddie anymore is absolutely spot on and something that wasn't just sort of felt kind of, you know, in an unspoken way, but that Colin Powell historically has been explicit about. And that uh, when the Gulf War was over and and when the end of history happened uh, and all these other things, that they needed something for the American military dollars to do. And deproliferation is never an option here. Um, so, you know, when we have the Gulf War, or rather when we have Desert Storm, um, that's us really proclaiming that Saddam Hussein is our big baddie. And despite the fact that it had ended, that war had ended three years later by the time we get to this movie, what I think the coverage of that military intervention, I guess, I, I don't ever even feel like the words that we have to describe these things are appropriate, but... Yeah. in an occupation. An occupation. Um, I think that the coverage of that occupation really informs this zeitgeist that you're talking about and and sort of visually and thematically how America starts to think of itself in relation to what I will crudely call sand countries, right? And so, you know, with uh, like 24-hour coverage on CNN of like actual bombs going off and like people reporting from the ground and this overarching sheen that the Bush administration is putting on the intervention that is all about us going in and liberating an oppressed people. Mm -hmm. It's no coincidence that that becomes the well tread territory thematically for American military intervention in the Middle East in popular media. And like, you know, two minutes into them, like encountering the humans on this planet, I was like, this is just us going to Kuwait. This is just us going to Iraq. This Mm -hmm. is us, you know, pick a country. Um, The point about the American military being bored and not really having anything to do, that actually becomes kind of a material mandate for the foreign policy once wars are actually over so we see in the years following that we continue to run covert operations impose sanctions Mm -hmm. um and are doing all but like active you know boots on the ground military intervention in places like iraq and and elsewhere and so the the prevailing narrative has to be well they're there to help people, they're there to liberate people. They're, we're these these efforts are are not necessarily wartime efforts, but they are uh, peacetime efforts that allow us to still be doing something actively as the American military. And that's the story that all of us Americans got. Like I very clearly recall, as a child of the '90s. I mean, we're the same age. The narrative I had in my head about why we were always doing shit, right, because um, it was all over the news, was because we had to go and save people. We had to go and free people all the time. I believed yep. that.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the film manages to incidentally, like, relitigate and also, like, apply itself as, you know, like a, a, a cultural indicator of this this myth right this idea that we have about like america coming in and being like a liberatory force we know readily now and you know even some people at the time knew this as well despite the story that we were being sold as you said right like we were encouraging uh like civilian uprising and revolt and rebellion within iraq to try to like you know uh, overturn uh the the hussein regime and and not giving any support to those people, right? Like they they assume that we would have uh, because of our encouragement. But at the end of the day, like it was just like you guys are on your own. We're not going to be here to provide munitions. We're not going to be here fighting side by side with you in the trenches as the speeders go overhead and and shoot lasers at us like they are in Stargate, right? And uh, you know, you say it's it's a tired trope. I, I wish it was more tired. You know, it's the same kind of conversation we had in you know the in like 2012 with syria mm-hmm. right you know the same idea about like uh a rebellion g- fighting the assadist regime and that we were th- coming in as like a liberating force to like do that it's the same thing that kind of happened when we like uh you know went after Gaddafi as well in it's libya happening
1: now with afghanistan and yes States. it absolutely like, is it's happening and, right now
2: yeah and they've they've managed to kind of like uh you know reconfigure it into like an identity politics conversation you know like you see so many of these kind of like you know hawkish like think tank people saying like we're abandoning the the women of afghanistan who have seen progress under our occupation you know still but still playing into this hand right like still can trying to convince us that whatever it is that we're doing over there is in some way progressive in some way uh, a value add to these people's lives rather than like the the main pressure point in their day-to-day existences.
3: Again, I don't, I think this is sort of just like um, happenstance because it was in perhaps like the cultural ethos or the, the political ethos, but notable too that the big baddie in this movie, Raw is actually going to destroy everything with a weapon that the Americans gave him. Yeah. Like... <laughs>
2: No, absolutely. That's
3: <laughs> a thing that we do, right?
2: And, and,
1: and, also... and Ra explicitly states, like, "I created your civilization, and I will destroy it." Mm-hmm. And yes, you know, there's many ways that you could turn that in a critical reading of, like, you know, the thing that might presage an event like 9/11. Perhaps is like, you know, the very the very thing that you have created has now been thrust back on you. know i i certainly don't want to suggest that the film is prophetic to that degree in any way but i think it's just it's referencing an interesting phenomenon that like none of this stuff happens in a vacuum and you can't just go around liberating air quotes foreign countries and then not expect some kind of you know domestic blowback to happen eventually so Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think that's an interesting point. Um, the The reading that I want to suggest of of all of this being certainly a manifestation of the script as a product of its time, and the reading being possible because I don't think Emmerich and Devlin are really maybe like conscious of it to a degree, but not really interested in engaging with those questions and i would say that that reading is strengthened in the character of O'Neill, because from the very moment that they get there he is disinterested in engaging with the quote-unquote native people he doesn't really want to intervene so to speak in what they're doing he just wants their reconnaissance their information he wants to figure out how to carry out his mission which we find out is essentially suicide and they've Mm -hmm. they've reactivated him because he has nothing to live for so he has this nihilistic suicidal ideation impulse um you know never never mind that he has a wife at home, right. yeah. that she gets like a glib like thirty seconds of screen time. Yeah, you know, that's that's never interrogated. Like, yeah, you do have something to live for. Like, it's very sad that your son died and, and shot himself with your gun. Very very tragic, much pathos. But like, you do have other things to to live for. Mm-hmm. um to, to suggest this reading that Emmerich and Devlin aren't really concerned with this U.S. imperialism angle is that once the attack on Ra starts and there's this fomented rebellion in the, in the populace on Abydos, you know, O'Neill is strongly against trying to empower them in any way, particularly with weaponry, with mm-hmm. U.S. weapons. And it's not framed from, let's say, like a leftist critique of like, no, we shouldn't be arming them. We shouldn't be, you know, coercing them into taking up violent arms against their oppressor. For him, it's very personal. He's like, No, I don't want to give you a gun because you might shoot yourself. And that's mm-hmm. it. That's like the level of his kind of rejection. But what's interesting is that all of his troops form these bonds with uh, the character of Skara and the young, you know, the young, the young boys who see the cigarette lighter and try and smoke and try and do all the like cool things that the Americans do. And when they're trying to argue with O'Neill over like, yeah, we should intervene, we should help, we should do a liberty, it's always framed as like, look, they want to fight. It's not they want to be free. It's not that they want to be able to exercise their own agency in their lives. It's just framed that like, oh, they want to do violence too. That's not interrogated by the film whatsoever. You know, growing up in the nineties, the the films that really resonate for me, if I had to like write them down and link them to specific filmmakers, what I notice is that a lot of them are people coming from the outside into the American, you know, entertainment industry, into Hollywood, and their films kind of become these idiosyncratic versions of their own politics. You see this in someone like Verhoeven who comes yes. in and, and goes like, okay, I'm going to reflect the hyperviolent excesses of American culture back at you, and you get RoboCop, you get Total Recall, you get Starship Troopers, you get all these like sci-fi settings that are really just reflections of American culture. Um, to some degree, you can see that in Luc Besson's The Fifth Element, Mm -hmm. Um, with commodification and materialism and this kind of like encroaching American cultural zeitgeist that's just everywhere. And then I think Emmerich is like somewhere in the middle where like Mm -hmm. he's not too concerned in doing that particular project. And if it is happening, it's happening subconsciously and he's not really aware of it. And there's particularly with the U.S. military almost this like tacit endorsement of them as the as the good without really any question of are they and why should they be. Um, yes. And yeah, I think that's a thread that runs through a lot of his '90s films. You know, I'm thinking now of Universal Soldier, mm-hmm. uh, of Stargate, Independence Day, Godzilla they all feature the military and the military having to intervene in all of these crises and they're all mostly framed as the good guys. They might fuck up a time or two, but they're generally considered to be the good guys.
2: Yeah. You know, a, a slight, maybe like, you know, chink in the, in the armor uh where's it chain i don't know what it is what the expression is <laughs> chink, in the armor. chink in the armor uh you know in in godzilla you know as we get to the end of the decade the actual heroes end up being like french intelligence and they kind of are like That's working right. behind the military's back for for a little bit there um yeah. but again also they're doing so and acting uh covertly because the the i guess like french intelligence were the actual people complicit in creating the monster in the first place with nuclear weapons tests um, that they weren't supposed to be doing. So there's a a little bit of a complication and a complexity growing in some of his films later on in the decade. But uh, yeah, you know, it's again, why Hit Factory exists, you know, and and why we talk about a lot of the movies that we do is exactly what you're expressing. Is that like, there is a, a feigned apoliticism, on behalf of so many of these films but when you think about it you know the kind of silent uh endorsement and and co-signing of the neoliberal order of the 90s uh is in itself uh, astoundingly violent in in the support of certain institutions that it it praises as being uh the good guys you know it, we we talked about this a lot in our our men in black episode too you know just like how Uh, wild it is that, you know, it's, it's essentially a movie about an intelligence community that is meant to maintain American imperialism, even intergalactically.
3: I think you can, I mean, this is not a novel concept, but, you know, it's a fact that any sort of piece of media or art that's made can never really be a political, right? Like it's always being made like in a time by a person who lives in a place. Like there is a society, sorry, Margaret Thatcher, but like that is a thing that exists and people are um, interacting with it whether they realize it or not. So, um, but I do think it's important to interrogate when the the construction is active on the part of the creator or sort of incidental, right? And I, I would agree with you that I think for Emric he's not concerned with it. He's using signifiers, as you said, because that propels the story forward, but he's not worried about the ideological baggage that comes with those things. I think that's a brilliant point, and I totally agree with you. the one thing I do want to talk about briefly, and then I think we should maybe close with the discussion about separating the art from the artist. Yes,
2: that's where I was ready to go, but I, I want to yeah, hear. Yeah, you your still other need to tell is.
1: me the uh, the Brian Singer thing. <laughs> we will we will talk about
2: it absolutely.
1: I was gonna say I also have a uh, an interesting profile that I found in Entertainment Weekly from the release schedule of the film, which has interviews with James Spader on the film. Uh, which I think is very interesting. And we can probably like chuck that in at the end as well. Um, oh, so, you yeah, we should absolutely talk ahead. about
3: it after what I'm about to say, because I'm going to talk about James Spader.
1: Okay, let's do it.
3: So um, firstly, let me just say, I fucking love James Spader. And <laughs> it should be noted that I didn't the first time I saw him on film. Mm-hmm. Um, what
2: was your first interaction with James Spader?
3: It's It wasn't pretty in pink. Okay can you guess crash mannequin
2: mannequin okay <laughs>
3: <laughs> which like i fucking love that movie um the the thing that's fascinating about james fate james spader is that incredibly talented just like uh, uh, I, like so undersung i think in terms of the way that i see him is like a very big star like an incredible talent just like a powerhouse of a person that could be in anything and do a fantastic job um but like really prolific early on and then kind of like faded into you know syndicated television and i think for a long time until he came back in things like ultron or lincoln or um you know the office that like people had largely forgotten about him and kind of thought that like he, he wasn't all that right i will Um, not have you
1: disparaging boston legal thank you very much
3: okay i'm so glad you brought boston legal up because both the practice and boston legal are two of my favorite shows and he was in the late stages of both of those series but he was still there
2: but he he resuscitates shows like that i mean like his robert california on the office is like one of the best like late period characters that that show ever offered yes
3: and he was on boston legal for four years
1: He's so he's so good. Just like a he's very, so good. very singular, charismatic performer. That's just like unto himself, uh, in throughout his career. Just like weird choices, weird roles, weird performances. Just yeah, love yeah. It. Love watching him.
2: One but, of the, one of the few general, like genuinely praiseable Marvel performances as well. For sure,
1: like yeah, really yeah. good
3: but intensely charismatic, as you said. And it's a charisma that is not like Tom Cruise charisma, right? It's like very, I I don't even think charisma is the right word. He's just like electric. And, you know, I was going through his filmography and I was like, this man has been in like trillions of movies. I mean, that's not the actual number. (laughs) I did the counting. in in roughly sort of like seventeen years, he did thirty one movies, which is just insane to me.
2: Huge Good Lord. Yep.
3: And I will read off a few of them. Pretty in Pink, Mannequin, Wall Street, Sex Live Lies and Videotape, True Colors, Dream Lover. Does anyone remember Dream Lover? I do not. Okay. It's got the girl from uh Twin Peaks in it.
2: Laura Flynn Boyle? No. The the
3: The one with the weird name.
2: You're going to have to take that one. Oh, and I honestly don't remember at the moment. Anyways, this is no what idea. happens when we get on the show as I forget names.
3: <laughs> uh, Stargate crash, right? That's just, that's nine years of, of, the of film. And I didn't even mention all of the, the ones that he made during that um, spread. But with this particular film, I think what's notable about his performance is that many of the movies he had made Up until this point, he had largely been typecasted in true colors opposite John Cusack. I don't know if either of you have seen that. He's not entirely detestable. Um, They make like an interesting pair. Um, But a lot of his characters prior to Stargate were like kind of smarmy. They were kind of douchebags. They were, you know, they were detestable to a certain degree. And yet he shows up in this role that. For audiences at the time, he's doing something very different. Um, If you're seeing this in 1994 and you're familiar with James Spader, you are seeing him anew in this movie because he is kind and thoughtful and kind of like um, extremely brainy and has a lot to say. And he's just such a different character. And it's effortless and I think watching this movie retroactively like I wasn't surprised by it but I situated myself back in an audience seeing James Spader on screen in a film like this which was also not type for him and just like was kind of sad that I didn't get to have that experience because he blows me away in this movie but I feel like I would have been that much more just excited and surprised by his performance had i seen this in 1994 and been super familiar with like the extent of his his filmography up until this point
1: yeah he is the beating heart of the film and i think if you were to pull him out and replace his performance with, with kind of anyone else who did a subpar job it would be a very diminished film because he Completely brings agree. he brings a level of like like sincerity and earnestness to the character, as well as kind of really making the character larger than life that that the film desperately kind of needs. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure how Spader gets cast in this, but obviously he saw something in the character of Daniel Jackson that he wanted to do. And like you say, Carly, maybe it's because it's against type for him. And he, you know, as a consummate professional, he wants a challenge. He wants to kind of do something mm-hmm. a bit different, cut his teeth on something new. Um, and it really works. And I think a lot of Emmerich's films need actors like this to make things work. Because yes. I think, you know, in Independence Day, you've got the star power of Will Smith, who's kind of like the equivalent to Kurt Russell, who mm-hmm. grounds that film. Um, as well as, name escapes me right now, but the geeky guy. Jeff, uh, Jeff, Goldblum. Jeff yeah, Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum, thank, thank you.
2: Jeff plays, plays the Spader character, basically, and, and it's necessary for him to be that as well. Yeah, if
1: you remove that character from Independence Day, like, what is that film? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, it's completely different. And I'd say to a lesser extent, uh, Matthew Broderick in Godzilla, who's probably mm. not as memorable, but still has like the sympathetic groundings of a, of a character. So,
4: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, you need, you need those relatable characters or those really good performances to kind of help you forget all of the other stuff that's going on in the Emmerich uh, filmography. Um, Absolutely. But, yeah, jumping off your point about Spader... I'll I'll read some, some quotes from this Entertainment Weekly piece, which I found, um, which I had not read prior to doing research for this, uh, but I'm so glad I did because it's kind of fascinating. So I've just kind of cherry-picked some quotes, but you guys should go and find it and read the whole thing because it's fabulous. It's one of those real, like, glossy 90s magazine, like, feature profiles where it's talking oh, about.
3: I love it. Jam- yeah. You
1: know, like... James Spader is on set he's standing with a you know open cut shirt and looking into the sunset like really like trying to like sink you into what's happening yeah. oh, um, I love that stuff we'll
2: link to this in the show description for
1: sure and they definitely will and then they kind of you know the interviewer is asking Spader about acting and about his films and, and Spader says I quote None of the films I've ever done are the sorts of films that I would go see if I weren't in them, he says, his voice briefly strangled as he sucks on a Marlboro, which I think is just like this perfect image of James Spader just like having a cigarette, just being like, yeah, most of my films are shit and I wouldn't see them <laughs> And then there's, there's more. So he says, quote, my reasons for taking a picture are wanting to play a character, says Spader who nonetheless admits that he was attracted to Stargate for other reasons. Quote, The script was just awful, and that sort of intrigued me, he says sardonically. That made me want to meet the director, Roland Emmerich, and he got me excited about it. I realised that making this picture was going to be such an adventure, that out of that would come an adventure on screen. And I think he kind of nails it, right? He's like... Looking at the bones and the skeleton, he's like, "Yeah, this thing kind of sucks, but we can work with that. We can do something with that." So the interviewer writes, "So has he finally made a film he might want to see, even if he weren't in it?" "No," he says, adding another title to his <laughs> stay away list. Not Stargate either. So like, <laughs> even, even at the end, he still doesn't care enough to actually watch the film. So oh I don't know God. if that's I don't know if that's an endorsement or not. That makes me love Spader even more. Same, right? I read that and I yes. was like, "What a boss!" Like he just <laughs> such doesn't give a, a, a boss. A fuck. There's an anecdote in the Variety piece where apparently during filming, he got so fed up with the dialogue that he refused to come out of his trailer. Um, and Devlin's kind of talking about it, and it halted production for most of the day. And then Kurt Russell apparently got the shits, stormed into the trailer, and he was like, "Yo, what's up? What's wrong?" And James Spader is like, you know, the dialogue's terrible. Like, how can they expect me to read this shit? And Kurt Russell, you know, ever the consummate kind of capitalist is just like, yeah, uh, it's because they're paying you a million dollars. That's why you read the shit. Like, <laughs> get out of the trailer. Let's do the thing. Like, I mean, at some point they are, they are professionals in the, you know, they're just there to do the job. They're just there to read the lines, do the thing, go offset, go home. So I think it's interesting that, you know, we can come at it at the level of art and they can come at it from the level of a nine to five job.
3: And also that there's a sort of inference of artistic integrity, not just on the part of an audience expectation, but also on the part of the workers, the actors, right? That that um, is like something that, is so hard-worn into this idea of an artist that we have in our society that it deludes them into forgetting that it is ultimately just a job, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very glamorous one, and it has lots of cool, like, costumes and shit, and you get to, like, explore psychic rifts of, you know, existence and personality. But it is still a job. But I'm glad that he did come out of his trailer. Me too. And say those lines. It
2: recalls for me that uh, scene with Ian McKellen from the Ricky Gervais show Extras, where he's explaining how he goes about his method. And it's like, uh, how did I know where to stand? You know, people told me. How did I know what to say? The words were written down for me in a script. (laughs) Uh, but this does, I think, lead into the last thing I want to talk about. I know we're going a little long here, but I, I did want to talk a little bit about, and I promised you all we would talk about...
3: Yes, you teased us. Uh,
2: you know, separating the art from the artist and, and you know, seeing creators as inherently flawed people, just like we all are, and and finding a way to uh, still find a love for the, the creation and, and not the creator. Um, Roland Emmerich, I guess, you know, is a he's an openly gay man um one of the most successful like in terms of box office like openly gay uh filmmakers or really people in hollywood in general um i think he probably you know took some of that that goodwill and ruined it by making that uh that awful stonewall movie back in like 2015 i have Um, not seen that I haven't I haven't watched much of it either, but I've read enough about it to know that you know, like what what was inherently a rebellion and like an anti-police kind of like riot started by you know uh, POC and and trans members of the queer community in the movie apparently is just like a cis white gay man who throws the first stone literally throws the brick uh, and and very whitewashed and I think he's been really uh really just kind of uh blatant about it and and said something in in a commentary along the lines of like I, i've got to sell a movie to the american public so you know i had to do it um, who, who, would which, have, who would have um,
1: thought that the guy who did the day after tomorrow would would do such a thing like, right
2: <laughs> or ten thousand bc yeah oh my fascinating know, and putting camilla bell in brown face oh boy. <laughs> oh. um but you know, one of the other things that came up, you know, in doing some research on on Roland Emmerich, the person, uh, is that you know, like in in the early days of his uh, his stardom and and his work in Hollywood, you know, when he was had, had a, a relative level of notoriety, he was pretty buddy buddy with Brian Singer, uh, you know, director of the the early X Men films and uh, famous for you know having become now sort of a persona non grata and blacklisted because. Of some inappropriate relationships with underage boys, many of which he would bring to these like uh, you know, these these large parties that were places that were designed around like the idea of indiscretion and like degeneracy, and like literally build to the people coming to them as like Hollywood sex parties, basically. Um, apparently his right-hand guy in organizing a lot of these. And, uh, you know, a good friend of his is, is Roland Emmerich. Um, so (laughs) apparently, you know, and, and he is like, not bashful about this either. He's like, yeah, I loved throwing these Hollywood sex parties. The only time we ever really fought was, uh, when he invited a thousand people instead of 500 people, like I told him he could. Um, and that's really it, you know? And so like, you know, in terms of aiding and abetting, uh, predatory behavior and and you know mal- malfeasance Roland Emmerich has been pretty shameless about doing so and not really apologetic in any way about being a part of a lot of of Brian Singer's um, really uh, reprehensible behavior. So you know it, it's mm-hmm. I think a little bit lesser known. Obviously, like Roland Emmerich is not exactly at the top of the list when it comes to like the liturgy of you know, like canonized sort of like filmmakers that people love and respect, especially not like a Polanski, you know, which people have a, a lot of difficulty with and and uh, finding some sort of reconciliation there. But for people who do enjoy his movies or have like an appreciation from their childhoods or youth to, towards certain properties and titles that he's produced, it it, it feels a little gross. You know, it, it's, it's a for little sure. difficult to reckon with.
1: I think for me you know, not to excuse that behaviour in, in any way, but I think it kind of seems like it tracks for for someone who who kind of grew up in Germany in, like, the 70s to kind mm-hmm. of have this, like, European sensibility when it comes to, like, organised sex parties and stuff, just mm-hmm. like yeah. this kind of more free-spirited European libidinal kind of sensibility. Yeah. Um, and maybe, you know, that that tracks to just not asking questions when Brian Singer brings, you know, young-looking men to these things and just being like, oh, I'm sure he's of age, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely icky and definitely gross. But the little that I know about Emmerich as a person, like, I guess that kind of tracks. Like, I can see him doing and being involved in things like that. I'm not sure if it really is present in his film, I think. I'd have to kind of ruminate on that a little bit more, but I think in the way that there's a certain amount of, like, signature or, or like, a character in his films, it's it's a little bit more abstracted than than that in terms of, like, Emmerich as a person, I mm-hmm. think, anyway. I'm um, interested to yeah. see what you guys think.
2: <laughs> I, I would agree with that. You know, like, we come back to this all the time, especially, like I said, when we when we discuss Mamet on here as well, you know, and and um, James Elroy, as you know, in, in a recent episode about LA Confidential, which we already mentioned um, with our friend Jesse Hawken. Uh, you know, we, we talk about these people who have sort of like problematic ideologies or, or are sort of difficult figures. And recognizing that, like you know, whoever they are as people, regardless of that, the thing that they actually put out as like the byproduct of their imagination and their like creative output um, doesn't doesn't bear any indicators of any sort of like uh, malignant sort of like worldview. You know, it would be one thing if it did for sure. You know, like with Martin Scorsese, how we know that he loves crime and endorses <laughs> it and says that crime is really good and all of his all of all of his characters are cool yes um but you know like if it was betrayed by like his the actual output you know and and by the work i think that i would have something to say about it but you're right i think that ultimately you know outside of what we've talked about in terms of like sort of incidental uh, endorsements of of things that we might find you know less than satisfactory and squeaky clean i don't i don't see it as as a inhibitor for me to enjoy something like a stargate or an independence day Mm.
1: have either of you seen a geostorm with gerard butler
2: i have not Mm -mm. i wanted to
1: so that is dean devlin's directorial debut
2: okay Mm. that makes sense that sounds like his has his fingerprints on it
1: so I think it might be his directorial debut or or maybe like his big budget kind of debut maybe he did a smaller film just before that but anyway it was his first big like project um and it definitely tries to jack the 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 juice from this like roland emmerich dean devlin partnership that they kind Mm -hmm. of perfected throughout the 90s and I think it's interesting you look at Emmerich's filmography up until 2000 um which I didn't realize but he did The Patriot with Mel Gibson.
2: Yes. And yep. I
1: fucking loved that movie when I was a teenager. Uh, like,
2: we we I rewatched thought, that very recently and I thought that still, was, Yeah.
1: I thought that was the sickest thing. Like I thought yes. it was so good. <laughs> yep. And I realize now that it's like just so goofy. And, and so kind of <laughs> it is. dumb on its face that, of course, it's a Roland Emmerich film, and, and that <laughs> makes like perfect sense to me. Um, but that was the last film that those two worked on together for a, for a considerable amount of time. So all of the films that Emmerich does throughout the 2000s, like The Day After Tomorrow, 10,000 BC, um, I'm guessing that Stonewall picture you mentioned before, you know, those are all kind of Emmerich off on his own, kind of doing other things. And then the partnership comes back for Independence Day Resurgence, Mm -hmm. which is awful and terrible. And then (laughs) uh, Devlin, I guess, gets enough of a cachet on his own to do Geostorm, Um, and it is laughably bad, like Mm -hmm. so, so bad. Um, Gerard Butler... (sighs) I could I could do an entire podcast on Gerard Butler and <laughs> and his his inability to do any kind of accent whatsoever other than mm. his own accent and just fascinating. But anyway, um yeah, that movie is really really bad, but it's bad because it's so it's trying so hard to be uh like an Independence Day or a Day After Tomorrow or to try and like get that juice that Emmerich can somehow get out of a terrible script with terrible Mm -hmm. dialogue. And Devlin, you know, on his own just does not have those chops and the film is, is very, very bad. So uh, seek it out. If you guys want to watch some trash and and have a good time, (laughs) like it is is it's a really good hate watch, just a supremely bad film.
3: Noted.
2: Absolutely. And I, I will say this, Owen, you know, Coming on a podcast is a lot like it. It's sort of like the the yerk in the ear, or like the like body snatcher type like experience. Animorphs reference? What? Yes, it was an Animorphs Uh. reference. But like, so like now that you've been on a show, I would not be surprised if sometime in the near future you wind up as a podcast host of this Butler podcast you're talking about. (laughs) You know, maybe timing it with like the release of Den of Thieves two or something like
1: that. (laughs) He is just. Like, if James Spader is, like, the ego, Gerard Butler is, like, the id. Mm. Because it is just, (laughs) like... Yeah. Just, again, like, weird choices, weird roles, supremely weird performances within all of those things. And I think even just in personal life, things that I've read and seen, like, he just seems like a weird dude. Like, kind of a prick and just, like, kind of an idiot. And... I don't know. Like, I don't know how he's so big and how he's so successful because I've never seen him in anything and been like, wow, that was a really good Gerard Butler performance. Like he is so just mediocre. It's kind of fascinating. And yeah, I think there's a lot to dig in there. I think you've uh you've tapped into something. Maybe I do the world's first Gerard Butler podcast.
2: <laughs> there we go. I
3: would definitely listen to that. The if for no other here. reason than for the Phantom of the Opera episode. <laughs> Oh
2: God, I forgot about that. God, it. I forgot about that. I, I tried he was to talk about that one. Yeah. He was in that. Oh, man. Well, we've gone nice and long today on this podcast. So I think that this is an all right place for us to close if there's no objections. No, not at um, all. We, we,
1: we riffed. We riffed. <laughs> we riffed.
2: We did indeed. We went
3: to Rift City, as uh, Aaron says.
2: Love Rift City. <laughs> the film, again, is Stargate by Roland Emmerich, perhaps in a tour? question mark Hmm. uh still something that we'll have to continue to define and argue on this program uh our guest again has been owen morowitz owen thank you so much for hanging out with us today and going long thank you so much for having me it's been a blast
3: where can people find your stuff owen
2: that is a good
1: question I, i would say uh just look for me on twitter uh i'm at twitter slash pitch discontent or just type in owen morowitz and i'm sure it'll come up uh I usually link to all of my writing work through there. Um, so that's by far the easiest place, I think.
2: Perfect. Right on. We'll link to your account uh in the episode description as well so people can follow you and, and check out what you're doing. Um and of course you can follow us as well at Hit Factory Pod. Subscribe and become a patron of the show for just five dollars a month at patreon.com slash hit factory pod. Shout out to our capitalist overlord Linda, and we will catch you all next time thanks everyone thanks everyone bye
0: I recall when I was small how I spent my days alone the busy world was not for me so I went and found my own I would climb the garden wall with a candle Hand in a faded yellow-green Made live a worldly wonder, often told but never seen. Now we am never bound to labor on the sea and in the sky.